The scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 1 through 10. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who is willing to consecrate himself to the, today to the Lord? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. This is God's word. We're concluding our series on the life of David today, the longest presentation of a single human life in ancient literature, not just in the Bible, the whole, all of ancient literature. And David's life is so rich. It's so rich that it's covered in multiple books in the Bible. You have First and Second Samuel, First Chronicles, numerous Psalms. Only Jesus' life was covered more in the Bible, in all the Bible. And whenever you look at a life like this, you see, gosh, what makes what breaks a life? And this incident, it really comes at the very end of David's life, and it's a fascinating message. We're going to go into this. We're going to go a little bit beyond what's written in the text. I wanted to make sure that we read a significant portion, but uh, we're going to go a little bit beyond that. But it really it teaches us a fascinating message, and the message is this. It's about the subject of the importance of what it means to have a personal experience of God, And embedded in that message is this. It's about giving, our giving. The key component in a real spiritual encounter with God, that's what we're going to see, at least as a part of this text. And at the same time, we're going to wrap up the entire narrative of David here. We're going to see four things. David's desire for his people. David's provision for his people. David's motivation for his provision. And lastly, our our provision, our motivation. David's desire, David's provision, David's motivation, and ultimately, our provision and motivation. First, David's desire. If you read the whole book of First Chronicles, it's really an account of a very redeeming account of David's life. And in First Chronicles, 
you see that the passion and the purpose of David's life really was to get the presence of God into his people. The heavy brilliance of God we're talking about, the heavy weight. When we talk about glory, the glory of God, we're talking about, we're talking about the heavy weight of the presence of God, the significance of God, the significance of the reality of God. That's what he means by presence, into the people. Now, all this was lost to Israel We learned about this previously by the time David became king. And the Israelites, you know, for some time, they they lost the ark. And for many years, the ark was in this remote place on the border of the land of Israel, all throughout King Saul's reign, the predecessor of David. And it being, the ark being on the fringe, on the brink, or on the border of Israel was kind of almost a metaphor for Saul's relationship with God. God was always kind of just on the border of Saul's life. And that, you know, as a king goes, so, so does his people. God was pretty much just on the periphery, just on the border of all of Israel's life and their relationship with God, which is pretty much a metaphor for most people today and their relationship with God. A lot of people say they believe in God. A lot of people say they even believe in the right doctrines. A lot of people say that they obey, but their hearts are distant from God. A lot of people say they believe in God, they obey, but something else really has their heart. And God, much like the ark, is really just on the periphery, in this remote place. Call it a suburb of our lives. But downtown, what's really at the center, there's something else that we're really looking to for our significance, for our worth, for our joy. And David wanted that to change. He wanted to change all that. So what David did is he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He literally brought it downtown into the center of the people's lives. And as he did that, there was this great song and all the celebration, this great procession. And you read his prayer, you read that psalm in your call to worship in First Chronicles 16. And in, if you read that prayer, we're not going to read it here, but uh, he's not just saying, you know, this relic, this ark belongs in a museum. That's not what he's saying. What he's really saying is, I, wanna, I want you to have a relationship with God. I want God to be at the center of your life. I want you, my hope, my prayer. This is David. I, my hope, my prayer is that God would be, at the, would be at the center and that he would really move you. He would really shape your life. He would really change your life. That's what he wanted. He wanted you to know his joy. He wants you to, to bring him in. That's what David wanted for his people. The presence the glory, the reign of God in their lives. David, he's a consummate king, consummate prophet, a consummate priest in that sense. And that's what he wanted for his people. That's point one. Now, what did he provide? Point two. If you read the narrative, you know that what he did by bringing the ark into Jerusalem didn't really bring about the change that he really wanted for his people. So what did David do? He took a step back and he said, I'm going to build God a temple. Here I am, I'm living in this nice palace. I'm going to build God a temple. And I'm going to have to raise money for this temple. And I'm going to build this house for God. That's going to intensify the knowledge of God's presence in the people's lives so that you, all of my people, could turn to him. Now, if you want to build a building, you need lots of money. You have to raise money. So what does he do? In verse 6, all the leaders, all the leaders of the families, all the officers of the tribes, it says they began to give, and they began to give like crazy, like mad. But why did they do that? Right before verse 6, 
David, who's now old, he makes a speech. And in this speech, he says, with all the resources that I've provided for the temple of my God, he said he gave gold for the gold work, silver for the silver work, bronze for the bronze work, iron for the iron work, wood for the woodwork. And he's, he gave onyx and, and turquoise and all these stones of various colors. He says all kinds of fine stone and marble, all in large quantities in devotion to the temple. He says, now, what does he do? Now, I'm going to give my personal treasures of gold and silver above all, above, over and above everything that I've, I've provided for. 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of refined silver. And then he says, now who will consecrate themselves today for the Lord? David was a king. David is a prophet. And here we see him. He's a priest. Now remember, the temple, all that was donated for the temple. All that was just given for the temple. Remember, the temple wasn't just a place. It wasn't just this building. It was a ministry. On one hand, you taught in the temple. You worshipped in the temple. You sacrificed in the temple. You prayed in the temple. But on the, at the same time, what you did was you cared for the poor. The temple was a place where mercy and justice were executed. And David said, yeah, I'm going to give all this money, all my possessions to build the temple, but I'm going to give even more, everything I have, to endow it so that the work in the ministry, justice and mercy, so that long after I'm dead, Justice and mercy will be, will be restored amongst my people. Now, he's, he gave, it doesn't say he took from his treasure. It says he gave everything. He gave of everything. All of his accumulated wealth. He's putting his dynasty, he's putting his kingship, he's putting his lineage on the line. You need money to maintain your monarchy, to pass it down from son to son to son. He says, I'm going to put it all on the line. That's incredibly remarkable. But now you've got to see how much this is. It says 3,000 talents, 7,000 talents. We read all this, right? What is a talent? A talent, we don't exactly know what a talent is, but we do know that a talent equals somewhere in between 1 and 10 years of an ordinary worker's wages in those times. Now, if you take that today, if you take the average U.S. income to be about $35,000 per year, Right? What we're seeing here is roughly, at minimum, three and a half billion dollars. That's what David, he's just giving it up. This is his, the sum of his net worth. And the people, verse 6, people were so astounded that they began to give. But even more remarkable than that, we're not talking about a person who has 40 billion dollars giving up three and a half billion dollars so that he could deduct it from his taxes. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not done so that he could write it off. David was giving everything, his entire treasury. Back then, you know, you see this later on because the disciples are talking about taxes. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He shows up a coin, and the coin literally had Caesar's face on it. Because back then, if you were an emperor, if you were a king, that money was literally, that gold was literally your gold. That was literally your income. It was your treasury. You conquered the land. You looted it. It was your treasure. And, and so here's David accumulating all this wealth. All of it is sacrifice. He's putting his monarchy, that dynasty, his dynastic line, on the line. 
You see, there's a way to give out of your abundance in a way that it doesn't really do, it doesn't really affect the way you live your life. And then there's a way that you can give where it hurts. A sacrifice. What does that mean? We can give in a way that that it hurts to the degree that it hurts in a sense that you can't do all the things that you actually had planned to do because of your giving. That's what David's doing here. He's saying, I don't know if the monarchy will survive. God has promised it. God will provide. So I'm sacrificing everything. That's what he did. So we talked about what he wanted for his people, the presence of God. We talked about what he did. He sacrificed everything that he has, all of his store. Now, more importantly, let's look at his motivation. Why did he do this? And it comes out, we see it later on in other verses, uh, from about verse 14 and on. We see it in his prayer, in his song. Now, now remember, this is a day where kings in the ancient times, in ancient cultures, they were considered gods in their own right. All kings were considered gods. It was considered a divine appointment. Uh, all kings refer to themselves as God. Roman emperors in the future, you know, thousands of years later, refer to themselves as gods. They talked about themselves as God. They were referred to as gods. They were considered divine. The dynastic line was considered a holy divine line. But in verse 14, if you have your Bibles, he actually says this. I'm going to paraphrase this for you. Mainly what David says is this. Who am I? I'm not worthy to have this money because everything comes from you. And we're given only what comes from your hand. Now that is incredibly astounding because if there's one person who actually earned what he has, it was David. Against incredible odds, from the beginning, from his ascension to the throne, fighting in caves, fighting giants, fighting in battles, winning wars, fighting in a civil war, in a sense, he earned his kingship. He earned the respect of his peers. He earned the love of his palace. He earned the respect and the honor of his army. He earned his popularity. He earned his wealth. He earned it all. If there's anyone in the world who started from the bottom to get to where he was, it was David. And yet, what does he say? Yes, I did a lot. Yes, Yes, I have talent. Yes, I've grown powerful. Yes, I'm a good general. I'm very strategic. I'm strong. Yes, I'm an able king. I'm an able prophet. I'm an able priest. Yes, I have mental, strategic, political abilities to navigate political landmines. But it was all given to me. I didn't earn my intelligence. It was given to me. I didn't earn my ability to to uh, grow strong and, and kill other people, that was given to me. Everything I have is a gift of God's sheer grace. David recognized God's sheer grace in his life. And in response, he gave. And the result's astounding. First, it says, if you start with verse 6, the leaders gave. And uh, you know, the leaders of all the families The officers of all the tribes, they began to give. And as they began to give, all the people started to give. And if you look at their amounts, I mean, you think David's amount was huge. Look at their amounts. We're talking on the order of 18,000 talents, 100,000 talents. Remember, one talent is one to 10 years of a person's wages, right? In other words, the people of God were starting to develop and divert a great part of their national economy, their gross domestic product, to the ministry in caring for the poor, 
for biblical teaching. All this was going to the temple. Why? Verse 9, it says their hearts changed. We know this because it says they gave freely and they gave wholeheartedly. Freely and wholeheartedly. And this marked the beginning of what David wanted for his people. He wanted the people to so much experience God in their lives that they were free. That they were free. And and he sees now the people, they're getting personally behind this. They're plugging into this. They're putting their whole selves behind it. The entire nation is getting behind it and just giving generously. Two ways, freely, wholeheartedly. Freely, the actual word means to be liberated. It means that at one point they were enslaved, but they were no longer enslaved. They were liberated and so liberated that they gave. The only reason why anybody would give freely, if you think about it, is if you're liberated from your wealth. If you're going to give freely, it's because you're liberated from your wealth. You're liberated from your greed. You're liberated from the fear, from this need, this desire to preserve yourself. It's this natural instinct to save your life. You're free from that. That's why we give. That's why these people gave. If you're free from the need to find security, if you're free from the need to find significance, worth in your money, then money has less of a grip on you. The text says they gave wholeheartedly. Literally, that word wholeheartedly is they gave shalom-hearted. The word shalom, very complicated word, but it, it, we see it as shalom, a greeting, a peace. Jerusalem, the very word Jerusalem, the city of peace. But it's a peace that only God can give. It's this fulfilling, all-encompassing peace. This peace that is free of disease, free of poverty, this peace that has justice and mercy built in. This holistic love and peace that rested, it can only be given by God. And that means that these people, their hearts were so satisfied. Their hearts were, it wasn't just an emotional thing. They were so satisfied, so taken by the love of God, so gripped by the grace of God. I mean, they basically said, God is faithful. God is good. God is gracious in my life. And as a result, they were so liberated from the greed that they started to give wholly, wholeheartedly, in peace. Now, why were they liberated to give? Most people believe in God, but they give their hearts to other things. Most people follow or obey God or desire to obey God, but they give their hearts. Their hearts are elsewhere. And when you do that, if you think about this, if you put your significance or security in other things, think about this, right? If you believe that your sense of worth is in a secure family, your your heart is really in a secure family, protection for your family, love for your family, money's going to come in handy. Money's going to come in handy. In this case, money is really just a tool to get what you really want. What you really crave, what you really desire and need is what? Family security. And so you're probably not going to give too much. Why? Because your money is going to be diverted into private schools, the best education that your children can have, the best type of care that your babies can have. It's going to be diverted into places like sports programs, larger homes with big yards so you can play catch. That's where your money is going to go. So you're probably, your your ability to give is is going to decrease drastically. There's this place in Haggai, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, Uh, We're probably not going to go into that in a while. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament where God says, I'm not going to answer your prayers. Why would I answer your prayers? Here you are coming to me and pleading me and petitioning me, and yet you've abandoned the work of my temple to fix up your own homes. What he's really saying is you have abandoned 
what I've called you to be and to do. After all that I've done, I've redeemed you, I've restored you, I've brought you out of exile, and yet you don't care for the things that my heart is burdened by, and yet you come to me and you pray. That's Haggai. In other words, what he's really saying is, why are you distant from me? You are so distant from my heart. So in those cases, you know, family security or something else has your heart. Yeah, money will come in handy. And as a result, you're probably not going to give a whole lot. But we're going to go a little bit deep here. What if you say, I need power in my life. I need control in my life. I need the ability to be able to live any way that I want. Money is no longer just a tool. Money becomes very, very important. No matter who you are, if you, what you want in life is control, money is more than just a tool. It becomes enslaving. It goes all, there's a much deeper spiritual significance to why we cannot give. And the Bible calls that Slavery. Because if anything has more importance, more heavy weight, significance, or a heavy brilliance in our lives than God, then apart from having, you know, those things, the Bible clearly says that those things are going to cause, they're going to be sources of tremendous suffering and discomfort and, and joylessness in our life. But on top of that, money will blind us because you're going to always feel like you need it more than you really do. And David, for David, he saw the grace of God just pouring out in his life. I mean, he experienced the grace of God in his life. And as we, and he, he saw it in the caves. He saw it running from his adversaries. And he saw it in his brokenness, in his own sinfulness. At the tail end of his life, looking back, is, God, is not God forgiving? Is not God gracious? He's saying yes. He's overwhelmed by the grace of God in his life. The presence of life is very re- of God in his life is very, very real. You know, we know that it's an illusion to think that money can buy you safety, that money can buy you love, that money can buy you power. But if you think about it, money can't stop divorce. Money can't stop cancer. Money can't stop anything. Money really can't stop. It's, a, it's actually very powerless in that sense. So the issue really is a lot more deep and spiritual than we think. And it's so blinding. Think about it. It's so blinding that Jesus talks about greed and materialism exponentially more than he talks about lust, cheating on your wife, or murder. Exponentially more. And when he does that, if that's Jesus' emphasis in the New Testament, then perhaps we're under the illusion, we're under the blinding power of money more than we actually think. Because our significance, our security is rooted in things other than God, much more than we think. When David says to his people, I am what I am by the grace of God, the people said, if David, who is our king, has that kind of trust to be able to put our country's security on the line and give for the sake of God's call to him, then maybe I don't need as much as I thought. If David is willing to give everything he's got, maybe I don't need as much as I thought. It literally started to liberate them. David's sacrifice started to literally liberate these people. His sacrificial gift broke the power of money over their hearts. His radical generosity 
helped to set them free. And, and as a result, they began to give of their hearts more to God, their experience of God in tangible ways. In other words, the power of money, it so broke their lives. It enabled them to give. It empower, it's the only way they're going to be able to give. And when they gave, even more power came. As they gave more, they start to give more power to give more. They start to give, create a feedback loop, and they just start to give like crazy. So David gave the people what he wanted for them. And through his giving, everyone else became stronger, more free, gave more heart, wholeheartedly. It gave the people a tangible view of the presence of God in their lives. That was David's motivation. What about us? What about our motivation? How do we break the illusion of the power of money in our lives and give ourselves more to God and be free of our wealth? At the end of First Chronicles, beginning with verse 19 and onward, David pretty much says, but I'm not going to be the one to build this. I'm not going to see the temple built in my lifetime. I'm going to just give. It's not going to be built in my lifetime. My son Solomon will build the temple. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God specifically told David that he would not be building a temple for God. And in one chapter prior to 1 Chronicles 29, in 1 Chronicles 28, God gives an explanation. He says, David, you, you shed much blood. You fought many wars. But one day you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a man of peace. And he is the one that's going to build a house for me, for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish through him a throne of the kingdom over Israel forever and ever. God is basically saying this. He's saying, you can't build this temple, David. You're a man of war. I need a man of peace. I, my prince is going to be a prince. The prince that I'm looking for is a prince of peace, my son. I will be his father. He will be my son. I'm going to establish his throne forever. He will build my temple for my name. He's going to bring. He will be the one that's going to bring my presence to the people. What does that mean? And it's got major implications for us. First, the temple was actually a sign of the future world that God is going to bring. Now, what's a sign? If you think about all the miracles in the Bible, they always call miracles signs. What is, the, what is a miracle? What do they all have in common? Modern people look at miracles, and they see the cleansing of the lepers, and they see the sight being given to the blind, they see the feeding of the 5,000, and they see that as Jesus defying the natural state, the natural order of the universe. But if you really think about it, the biblical perspective is very different. Signs are actually restorations of this natural order. In other words, God didn't create a world. You know, think about the miracles, cleansing of the leper, feeding of the 5,000, giving sight to the blind. God didn't create a world where there was supposed to be poverty. God didn't create a world where there's supposed to be that kind of brokenness. God didn't create a world where, the, where people can't see, people can't move or can't walk or can't hear, where there's hunger pervading throughout the city. So these miracles, they all pointed forward. That's why they're called signs. Signs point forward. Signs of what? Of the type of world that God is going to bring about. The end of poverty. The end of disease and sickness and hunger 
the end of war and death for all time. That's what miracles are. The temple was not just a building where rituals took place. It was a glorious place where mercy and justice reside. Yes, there's teaching, lots of teaching. Yes, there's worship. Yes, there's prayer and sacrifices. But it was also a place where you can go to care for the poor. It was a sign of the restoration of the natural order that God, through his kingdom, will bring. And what God says to David is, David, you are a man of war, and in the future there's going to be no war. You're a man of war, and there's going to be no war in the future. The temple has to be a sign of peace. The temple has to point forward to a time of justice that will come. And so, because it has to be a place of reconciliation, because it has to be a place of forgiveness, I need a man of peace who's going to build it. And when God turns David down, he says, I will be this person's father, and this person will become my son. Was he talking about Solomon? No, because even though Solomon helped to build the temple, Solomon's throne didn't last forever. Was he talking about the dynastic line of Solomon and of David? No, because there is a a very bleak period in Israel's history, and you see it covered through a great deal in the Old Testament, where basically Israel was torn apart. The kingdom and the nation was torn apart, and they were separated and enslaved and exiled. The temple and the kingdom was just torn apart, broken and destroyed. So it wasn't necessarily through Solomon. It wasn't necessarily through Israel. What is the temple? The temple is intended to be a bridge. A bridge to what? And this is the key. Here's what we're looking for in life. What all of us here are looking for in life. We're looking for access. We're looking for access. God's acceptance. The reason why we work so hard every day, yes, we want approval from our bosses. Yes, we want approval. Maybe even from, you know, as a man, I need to provide for my house. So in order to be, have approval as a father, I need to work hard and make money and show in my own little kingdom that, yes, I fulfilled my duties. I can get that approval. Yes, we're looking for that. But really, the reason why we're so bent on that, the reason why we're disposed to that is because deep inside, we want a cosmic acceptance. There's a deep cosmic significance that we're really looking for. We want access. C.S. Lewis says that when you get that access, then the door that you've been knocking on all your life has finally been opened at last, and you're in and you're inside. Access. That's what the temple is. We're looking for access. The bridge, the temple is really a bridge to that sense that we don't really know who's behind the curtain, who's behind the veil. We're distant from him. The temple lets us get into that veil. It gives us access to God, a sense of knowing God, We try to obey, we try to believe, we say that, but he's distant, he's remote. Who's going to bridge that gap? Who's going to unveil the curtain? God tells David, it's going to be my prince of peace. I will be his father, he will be my son, and this throne will last forever. It wasn't Solomon, Solomon didn't last. It wasn't the dynasty Even the dynasty didn't really last. Who is it? Centuries later, 
Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And what happens? As he's being baptized, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven cries out, calls out, This is my son. I will be his father. He will be my son. This is my son. And here he goes. What basically what he's saying is this person is not just going to build the temple. He is the temple. How is he the temple? In John chapter 2, Jesus, very, very famous act, Jesus runs through the temple, the physical temple, and he starts clearing the temple. He starts chasing the money changers out, all the animals out. He starts chasing, you know, turning over the tables. And he's got this whip and he starts tearing the place apart. And the people says, on whose authority can you do this? And he says this. Jesus says, tear down this temple. I will build it up. I will rebuild it in three days. But the author of the gospel is John. He says the temple that he was speaking of was his body. Jesus' body was the temple. Jesus is the temple. Jacob, in the book of Genesis, another famous account in the Old Testament, he's lying on a rock as his pillow because he's got nothing. All his life, and he's amounted to nothing. He's lying on this rock. And this great stairwell, this ramp from heaven comes down. And God is literally peering over Jacob in tenderness and gentleness and in grace and utters amazing promises to Jacob. And there are angels that are hovering, basically, up and down this stairwell. Jesus says, in John chapter 1, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. I am the temple. I am the way. I am the link. Heaven and earth converge on me and converge through me. I am the bridge. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the access that you've been knocking on all your life. And I can let you in. So Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the bridge, the access that we've been looking for. He's the embodiment of everything that we've been looking for all our lives. And he doesn't accomplish this by becoming a little bit uncomfortable. He accomplishes it by giving up his life. What Jesus did on the cross was not just pointing to grace, the way David was pointing to grace. What Jesus was doing on the cross was bringing it. This is how God can accept us by grace. This is how we can get in. This is our way in. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus paid the debt. He paid the ultimate price for this temple to be raised, his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? He said, I'm forsaken. Why? So that you can be in. I've been rejected. Why? So that you can be accepted. That's the gospel. What does that mean? It means that the sacrifice and the generosity of Israel's king, David, moved his people into enormous generosity, freely and wholeheartedly in every way, then what would the infinitely greater sacrifice, the infinitely greater generosity of our king, what will that do for us if that shapes us? Here are some implications. First, it's going to forever change your approach to God. Every other religion says this. 
And you know this song, especially if you have kids, or if you were a kid, and I believe everybody here was a kid at one point. He's making his list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. In other words, every other religion says what? Be good, do good things, accrue value. And if you just accrue enough, maybe God will accept you. But the gospel says no. You can never accrue enough value to get in. God had to come down at infinite cost to himself. Pour himself out. Live the life that you should live and die the death that you should die and pay that debt. That's going to change your approach to God. That's got to change your view of God because you're in. God is not some, some, some superstitious force that you need to send some sort of thing his way in order that you can get to know him. You can know him now. In fact, you can be intimate with him. God has made a way to be intimate with you. That is his great desire. Jesus, the greater David, what is his desire? That you would come to understand and know and experience the presence of God. Second, what that does is it changes our attitude towards money. It changes our attitude towards God. It changes our attitude towards money. It has to. It's got to change your attitude to money. Once you get the gospel, you know what you're worth. If you really get the gospel, you really know what you're worth. Because of the infinite love of Jesus through his life, through his sacrifice, through his generosity. David, the king, said, I'm giving up my personal wealth. Jesus said, I'm leaving my father. I'm leaving my throne. And he didn't come to an earthly throne. He came to a manger. How many thrones are there in the world? Not that many. How many mangers are there in the world? Plenty. He, came, he was homeless. He came in homeless. There was no room for him in the inn. He came completely homeless. And mainly what he's saying there, from the very nature of his birth, is I'm giving everything up. And that becomes a sign. Everything he does is a sign until that day when he's truly raised up. And he says, now I'm giving the one thing that means everything to me. David said, 7,000 talents, 3,000 talents. The people said, 18,000 talents, 100,000 talents. Jesus said, the one thing that represents my entire sum of wealth is my access to God, the love of the Father. This is my son whom I love. He says, you've forsaken me. I've been rejected. I've given it up. Why? So you could have it. So that it could be yours. Does that shape you? Can that move you? We are being brought into the house of Christ to know that God is totally committed to you unconditionally forever. Those are big words. To know that God is totally committed to you unconditionally forever. He is of infinite value. Jesus, no one would ever doubt the infinite worth of Christ. And yet he said, I have planned this, I've prepared this, I've worked this, I will sacrifice from the moment I am born to the day I die. It is all for you. Surely you must know. It is all for you. You are of immense, incredible worth to the Father. Do you believe that? We say, but I earned this money. You can't earn eternal wealth. It's the only thing that's going to last. But this is my worth. This is the sum of my worth. Come on. It can't give you true worth. 
But it gives me security. Listen, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, literally, to figure this out. We are on a hurling ball of rock that is traveling at 67,000 miles per hour. You think that's going to go on forever? One day it's going to come to an end, friends. It's all going to come to an end. Your bank account can't stop that. Nothing you have is going to be able to stop that. You want real security? You want real security for your family? Bring them into the house of Christ. Bring them close to the Father. That's going to give them security. Once you see that, once you know that, your self-image, it's no longer going to be based on what other people think. It's no longer going to be based on your circumstances around you. It's no longer going to be based on your perceived needs of power and influence and wealth. And as a result, your wealth, your money just becomes money. It just becomes money. Now, I don't want to diminish it. We need it to live. You need it. It's not like you can't enjoy things in life. But you will be free from the need of it defining you forever. And once you've got that, the currency is just currency. It's no longer your currency for significance and worth. Then you can give it. Then you will be free. And you will be joyful. And you will give it gratefully. Christians are the only people who give while thanking. Everybody receive. It's easy to receive something and be thankful. Christians are the only ones who give and say thank you. Do you understand that? Do you get that? It's going to change your attitude, lastly, of your view of other people. Because you know why? When you start to give, when you have a community of people who start to give, people otherwise that you never would have met, that you never would have known, will get an opportunity, number one, to get jobs, to increase their standard of living. And people you otherwise would never know will get to hear the word of God preached to them the way we take for granted every week. Shown to them, given to them. They have a chance, not just at a better life, but an eternal one. You become, through your giving, a visible demonstration of the temple of God where mercy and justice prevail. The Apostle Peter writes, You are living stones built up in Christ, showing his future glory. You are the living stones that built up in Christ, that are built up in Christ, representing the peace that will come. You know what that means? You are literally the temple of God, bridging access to heaven and earth. Do you get that? Look to the greater David. He is immense sacrifice for you. What he's done for us, let that shape you. He is the Prince of Peace. Let his shalom shape you. Let it empower you to give in a proportion that you've never given before. And it's going to make the presence of God visible, not just through you, but to the entire world. That's his promise. That's the gospel being tangibly lived out. Let's pray.